Hello, everyone. Welcome. You are listening to Layers in Media, a perspective. I am your host, Aisha Sala. Let me tell y'all, this is my first podcast ever, and creating a podcast is one of the most stressful things I have ever done in my life. I'm basically going to be geeking out over the movie Joker for this first episode, but you should know that. I have already recorded an episode geeking out over the Joker, except it was such trash that I decided there is no way in heck I could ever publish it online. And I had to go back, restructure the entire podcast I had in mind. And then this is the second recording of an episode on the movie Joker. I officially have a newfound respect for each and every podcaster out there. I cannot believe the amount of work that these people are putting into this thing. And honestly, like, (laughs) I hope I can keep this up because I really want to. I'm really passionate about it. But wow, like, I did not know this was going to be this stressful. But it's fun because it's also me doing something that I love and talking about something that I am super passionate about. So the movie I am going to be discussing today is Joker, which is basically one of my favorite films of 2019. The movie is directed by Todd Phillips and is starring the actor Joaquin Phoenix. If you guys don't know, Todd Phillips is the guy who wrote, directed, and produced the Hangover movies, which I wasn't expecting. But then again, it also explains how Bradley Cooper ended up being a producer on Joker. And Joaquin Phoenix is, I mean, I know he was a child actor, but I know him from movies like Gladiator and, um, you know, A Walk the Line where he plays Johnny Cash. I love Walk the Line, by the way. He's so good as Johnny Cash, and I love him playing opposite Reese Witherspoon. And guys, did you know that Joaquin Phoenix was the voice actor for Brother Bear? Like, he's the guy who gets transformed into a bear, and we're following his story. I didn't realize, but now that I think back, that's exactly his voice. I was shooketh when I found out... Anyway, yeah, I love him as an actor. Do you guys remember him and her? It was that movie like set in the future where he falls in love with the computer that he starts like interacting with and talking with. That movie was crazy. Also proved just how epic of an actor Joaquin Phoenix is. And if that was not proof enough, then y'all need to go see Joker because his acting in Joker is incredible. The way I wanted to structure this talk on Joker was I wanted to separate this into like segments. The first segment I want to go over, I'm going to call the epic moments. (laughs) Honestly, I'm just going to talk about the moments that had me sitting at the edge of my seat. I want to go watch this movie three times in the theater. And honestly, I'm probably going to go see it more times after that because it's, it's just epic on the big screen. This is one of those movies where you really should not wait for it to come out on DVD. You should take the time, put in the money and see it on the big screen because it's just epic to be sitting in the theater and watching this beautiful film on screen and being surrounded by the beautiful soundtrack of this film. The soundtrack is one of my favorite soundtracks this year as well. I just think the score is incredible. It's one of those soundtracks that I'm definitely going to buy. I don't know if you guys know this, but I collect movie soundtracks. That was like my introduction to music as a kid. I literally like the first album, (laughs) quote unquote album that I owned was the soundtrack to Gladiator. 
and then I owned the soundtrack to Lord of the Rings. Both epic soundtracks, by the way. The next addition to that collection is going to be Joker because it is epic. Anyway, the epic moments. I'm going to start with Arthur reading the letter uh, from Penny Fleck to Thomas Wayne. Holy jeez. I am officially obsessed with the possibility that Joker is the half-brother of Bruce Wayne, a.k.a. Batman. That scene where he's reading that letter and that information is being revealed literally had me scooching closer to the edge of my seat because I could not believe the decision the writers made. And then the subsequent scene coming right after where Arthur is walking up to the Wayne mansion and he sees a young Bruce Wayne and they have that crazy interaction. I really like the parallels that they make when they're showing Arthur meet Bruce Wayne. They're making Bruce Wayne and Arthur Fleck like parallels, but living on opposite sides of life. It's almost like, you know, Jordan Peele's Us. You know, Bruce Wayne is living in this lavish, well, lifestyle and Arthur Fleck is living in poverty. Um, Arthur wants a father figure and Bruce Wayne has this amazing father figure. And I just, and even like the costumed choices, like um, when Arthur Fleck goes to meet Bruce Wayne, they're both wearing the exact same color jackets, but Arthur Fleck's jacket is very obviously like this grungy, cheap kind of jacket. And this very young, probably like 10 year old Bruce Wayne is wearing this trench coat coat that looks super expensive and nice and, and elegant. And I just, I love that meeting. If you guys even listen to the music during that scene, the music is incredible because there are these emotions in it that it's like a combination of potential brothers meeting for the first time. So there's that kind of emotional longing in the, in the music, but then there's also this kind of epic orchestration where, you know, it's very obvious that two of the most epic rivals in comic history are meeting for the first time. And they're meeting under very normal circumstances. Arthur Fleck is just a man and Bruce Wayne is just a child. And we're feeling like the beginning of this epic journey. Really, it's, oh my God, it's so amazing. Epic moment number one, for sure epic moment number two, the train scene where we see Arthur kill his first victims. The train scene is amazing because of the way it's filmed. I don't know if you guys remember, but when the three Wall Street boys or Wall Street men, whatever, when they start making their way over to Arthur, who's having one of his laughing fits, the train is going through these, I don't know what you call them, but like the the, the screen is blacking out. So as these Wall Street boys are, are stepping closer and closer towards Arthur, who cannot control his laughter, there's these blackout moments and then you'll instantly see them get a little bit closer and you know the guy is singing that creepy song in a creepy way and it's just so clear that they are they're enjoying taking advantage of Arthur and his condition and and they just they they can't wait to continue bullying after they you know bullied that girl and they were laughing and everything it's just such a such a crazy progression of a scene and then of course there's that instant 
you know, gunshot and all of a sudden you're mind blown because this unexpected kill happened and Arthur brings out the gun that had just got him fired from his job. I don't know. It's really epically shot. And then, of course, watching him go after that last guy where you see him go towards the guy with the gun, but you're seeing him through the the windows of the moving train. Such an epic shot. Oh my God, such a good choice. The cinematographer working with the director, honestly, is such an amazing partnership because they came up with some epic visuals for this movie. And then the third epic moment that I just like, my jaw was dropping while watching this scene, the bathroom scene that comes right after the joke has made his first kills. He gets into the bathroom all panicked and the bathroom is grungy and dirty and the fluorescent lights are flickering but all of a sudden this music comes on and he has this time to calm down and he starts dancing and you know what's so crazy is i learned that that scene actually wasn't planned like it was written differently in the script and when it came time to actually film the scene the director and the and joaquin phoenix kind of just decided that it didn't work. I think they said the way the scene was written was, you know, Arthur Fleck is panicking, he's trying to hide the gun, he's trying to hide the evidence. And all of a sudden, while they were on set, they were like, yeah, that just doesn't feel like Joker. So they literally had the score, they put the score on, and then Joaquin Phoenix just started dancing this weird, graceful, creepy dance. And then Todd Phillips was like, yep, that's it. And then that's that's the scene. That's that's it. It's just so spontaneous, but amazing. Like it was so beautifully done, so beautifully lit. When you see that camera shot of his face just going towards the ceiling and you see the smear of blood on his chin, it's like I understand why that's why that's one of the shots they use in the trailer. It's such a beautiful shot and it's such a, I don't know, it's like him embracing for the first time the possibility of becoming Joker, you know, the first step to becoming Joker and the gratification of embracing that character. Such an epic scene. Okay, speaking of epic Joker scenes... Obviously, the next epic scene I'm going to talk about is the dance down the stairs in full Joker costume. Oh my god. That scene is I want to learn that dance. I want to learn those Joker moves because they were amazing. He just he's got the cigarette in his mouth. He's blowing out the smoke and he is so happy with where his life is going. He's dancing down these steps. He's he's stomping in these puddles and the music starts off as, you know, really rock and roll, just really hardcore and then it transitions into being this dark pounding sound of just, you know, you know, just like this foreshadowing into the the darkness that is Joker and what he is going to become and what he is going to do to the city of Gotham. Such an epic scene. And then after that, oh, okay. So the glee that he feels, this is the next uh, epic moment, the glee he feels after besting the detectives on the train. So you know how he's on the train, the detectives are after him, and then, you know, the detective accidentally shoots that other guy and then they start getting taken down by the clown mob. So there's the shot of Joker watching as the detectives are getting, you know, 
assaulted. And he just does this little skip of joy and excitement and he jumps up into the air and then he walks away and, and, and oh my God, it was just such a beautiful joker thing to do. I mean, for all of the clown moments that we see him participate in before, you know, when he's holding the sign or when he's at the hospital, this was the first one that was just like, it was cynical and it was dark, but it was so happy that, and and chipper, like he was so happy at seeing this violence. Such an epic scene, but also crazy and wild. And then of course, you know, that walk, that, that, Okay, so he's he's done that little skip step and then he's walking away from the clown mobs going wild and he's walking in the direction opposite everyone else and the shot is just watching him and I think it's in slow motion and he's just blowing out the smoke from his cigarette. It's such a beautiful shot and it's just him in these bright, vibrant colors of red and orange and green against this white background amazing and then of course uh i think this next epic moment for sure is beautiful it's his entrance onto the murray franklin show so you know how okay i watched this movie three times right the first time my eyes were locked on joaquin phoenix's performance i could not take my eyes off of him for a second And then the second and third time that I watched the movie, I started paying attention to the extras, like the actors around him who were reacting to his strange, eerie, graceful, yet somehow creepy movements. And in the background, okay, so he's waiting to get introduced onto the Murray Franklin show and he's he's standing in front of the curtain that's about to part ways and you see him kind of hunch over and kind of work his way into the stance or the pose that he wants the world to see him in and in that scene there there's this guy and this girl standing off to the side watching Murray Franklin on this kind of smaller screen And in between watching Murray Franklin and his jokes, the guy and the girl like turn their heads and start watching Joker. Like they start watching him do these creepy movements and they 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 don't know how to react. So they kind of make these decisions of just looking back and forth from the screen and from the actual human being. I don't know. It's so amazing. And then of course there's the actual entrance where he does the little spin and the twist and he's just he's in the spotlight and he loves it and yeah amazing epic moment for sure and then the last epic moment obviously is his recovery from the car crash um in the police car and like him making his smile his epic joker smile out of his own blood when he stands up and then like puts his fingers into his mouth, realizing that there's blood there and just spreading it across his face, smiling and then turning to the crowd that just cheers for him and loves him in full Joker mode. Such an epic shot, such an epic scene, such an epic choice. This is going to sound weird, but I really like the blood work in this film. I know that sounds creepy. 
I'm not that weird. I, I am that weird. The blood work is just really good though. It's like the, the, the use of the blood to make the smile, epic obviously. The use of blood when Thomas Wayne like punches him in the face in the bathroom scene, the way the blood drips down. It's such a small amount, but it's used so effectively and it's captured so well by the camera and the light that it's just like, dang, like some movies use blood in abundance, like Braveheart or Gladiator, you know, it's just like splattered everywhere. But Joker is very specific with the blood use and is very particular with its entrance into the scene and how it splatters onto the environment or onto Joker himself. And it's just, it's really well done. I don't know why I like it so much, but I do. Yeah, that might've been too much information. I might have to cut that out. Okay, next section, the gut punches. This is definitely going to be one of those podcasts where I'm going to insert random sound effects that match. (laughs) And if you are annoyed, I am so sorry, but this is, this is an element of my podcast that really excites me. Anyway, the gut punches, basically the scenes that hit me the hardest emotionally when watching Joker. I'm going to start with the very first scene that's a, a serious gut punch is Arthur's first fantasy where he's watching the Murray Franklin show with his mother for the first time. And then all of a sudden we enter into this illusion or delusion of Arthur's where he's in the crowd of the live studio audience and Murray Franklin, you know, he points him out and he learns a little bit more about him. And then he emphasizes, uh, you know, that, oh, you know, I would give all of this up if just for just to have a son like you, Arthur. And it really, it establishes Arthur's desire for a father figure in his life. And it's such a gut punch because it's just, it's such a simple thing for a man to want, for a boy to want, really. It kind of really opens up our eyes to the child in Arthur that is not satisfied. You know, the child that still wanted that experience to be a father's son. And that trope really plays out throughout the film. And it's really tragic how it plays out, but it's also an important part of how the Joker comes into being. Okay. The second gut punch is Arthur during his first stand-up gig at Pogo's. Okay. So I love the choice um, in the writing to make Arthur's laugh a neurological condition. I thought that was just one of the most epic decisions for the character of Joker because it gives you these really creepy scenes where Arthur is trying to control his laughter but can't. And, you know, this is a unique laughter because he's he's laughing uncontrollably and then he's trying to reel his control back in by like taking these deep gulping breaths in and it's just such a crazy sound and it feels painful and it looks painful. Just watching Joaquin Phoenix laugh his heart out and then have a facial expression of pain was such a crazy thing to watch. When he loses, when he gets a laughing fit that cripples him during his first stand-up gig, It hurts so much to watch because you want so badly for something to go right in his life. And this is like the last thing, like, please let him have a shot at letting his dream come true and letting him become a successful stand-up comedian. And of course, he gets so nervous, he gets stressed, so stressed out by the situation that 
it brings on a laughing fit and he he can't he can't deliver such a gut punch for sure also interesting note about that scene um is the lighting if you guys go back and watch the movie or if you haven't watched the movie and are going to go watch it for the first time notice the lighting in the background. There are two sets of light on either side of Arthur's set and it's two white lights and then one red light. And it almost kind of looks like this simplified clown face watching Arthur as he's failing on stage. It's really interesting, really beautiful, and just, you know, it's a perfect decision, really. The lighting in this movie is amazing. Okay, third gut punch. Murray Franklin making fun of Arthur on national television. This scene killed me because he's in the hospital. He's worried about his mom in a coma after the detectives just stressed her the heck out and brought on a stroke. And Arthur sees Murray Franklin showing his clip at the stand-up comedy club. And he gets excited for a second because he's like, oh my God, is my TV idol like acknowledging my existence? And then it's revealed that Murray Franklin is making fun of him without his permission, without, you know, any consent. He's just plain making fun of him. And it hurts to watch because it's basically a scene that crushes the idea of Murray Franklin being a father figure in Arthur's mind. And then of course, right after that scene, the fourth gut punch, Arthur's confrontation with Thomas Wayne. So we're already seeing Arthur go through the stress of his mother being in a coma and, you know, his meds being cut off, him no longer having a social worker to talk to. And then you get the confrontation with Thomas Wayne in the bathroom. And it's so interesting because you see, you know, there's this almost like this excitement and anticipation that Arthur has where he he takes off the usher's uniform and he smooths out his hair and he really regardless of how he looks he wants to be presentable cuz he genuinely believes that he's about to meet his father and of course this scene destroys his last hopes at gaining a father figure in his life. And it's so awful because Thomas Wayne is slandering his mother. Oh, you're adopted. Oh, she's a liar. Oh, she's she's a she's crazy and you're crazy. And and it's just and then of course all of this stress it, leads to him just losing it and and he gets so emotional and it's so interesting because during the scene he he basically says you know you know why is everyone so mean why is everyone lying i don't want anything from you i'm not asking for anything i just how about some warmth how about a hug dad and then it's of course it becomes even more awful because he gets that laughing fit that he can't control and thomas wayne punches him uses violence against him after calling him crazy after calling his mother crazy and that scene ends with you know the film cutting to him being in his own apartment, taking out everything from his refrigerator and just stepping in and staying there. And that's such an interesting scene because it's basically like he has consistently tried to gain some sort of warmth from this world that he lives in. And the world is constantly denying him that warmth, that affection. And so he steps into the refrigerator and it's almost like he's embracing the cold. He is no longer 
longer expecting any kindness and he's he wants the cold he wants the darkness and this is going to be the new him this was this was really like the cutting off of any potential father figure plus the damaging of the mother figure by um insinuating that he is adopted eliminates any emotional connection that arthur had to any parental figure such a major gut punch really hurt to see that scene play out for sure obviously the next gut punch after that is arthur reading penny Fleck's hospital records and reading the uh, interview with Penny Fleck when she was younger with the uh, social worker who brings up the uh, conditions that Arthur was found in as a child. Just that one detail that they bring up in the records of Arthur as a child being found tied up to a radiator by the the crazy abusive boyfriend. Honestly, that detail shook me to my core because it painted such a vivid picture of the suffering of this child. It's so interesting the way they use Joaquin Phoenix in this scene because you've got him reacting to the records in the hallway of Arkham and then you and then they kind of recreate the scene where the the mom is responding to the questions of the social worker and you see grown Arthur in the corner of that room watching, kind of watching with a look of, I don't know if you'd call it confusion, but a look of just like, really, is this what happened? I don't know. It, it was a hard scene. And of course, this is the moment that completely disconnects him from his mother after all of the scenes that we see him taking care of her and nourishing her and washing and bathing her this is what we learn about what she allowed to happen to him as a child and really the foundation for why he became the man that he became definitely a gut punch okay and then right after that scene, he's so upset. He's he's walking through the rain and then he's walking into his apartment building and he walks into his girlfriend's apartment, except we get the very next gut punch, which is that his girlfriend is actually one giant delusion that he has been playing out this entire film. It's really sad when, you know, she walks into the room and she gets frightened because she's like, oh my God, what, what, what is this strange man doing in the room? And as an audience member, you're, you just, you kind of slump down in your chair because you're so upset. He literally just lost the, the last thing, the last thing that, that could have given him any kind of motivation to, you know, be a decent human being and 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 hold on to hope is just shattered. And even like his his entrance into the apartment, you know, feeling over the toys and the backpack that's strewn across the apartment, we we instantly the idea that it's a strange room to him that he hasn't actually ever been in her apartment and of course, his posture, even when he's just like slumped over in her couch, soaked to the bone, and he just says, you know, I've, I've had a really bad day. Yeah, definitely. Also, guys, did you notice that she was a, a delusion the entire time? Because the second and third time I watched the movies, I really felt dumb that I didn't get it the first time. But then when I think of like the delusions, like the first delusion with uh, Sophie, the neighbor, is when she comes to his apartment to confront him about following her at work. There should have been so many clues in that scene that 
clued me into it being a delusion. Like the scene was so comfortable and he flirted with her so easily and she flirted back and she complimented him on being funny and, you know, robbing a bank. And it was just such a smooth interaction, which is obviously so out of character for Arthur. Like that should have been such an easy giveaway that it was delusion, but I was so dumb and I was so hopeful and I really wanted it to be real. So my mind told me that it was real. And then of course the second delusion where he freaking murders three people, has blood on his face and clown makeup. And then he goes to her apartment and starts making out with her and she just welcomes him with open arms. Obviously not going to happen. Obviously that's super fake. Should have clued me in didn't clue me in, still dumb, still hopeful. And then the third delusion where she is at the comedy club um, supporting his career and then they go on the big date afterwards. First of all, it was obviously a trash comedy set, starting with that horrible laughing fit. But the the scene shows a clip of her, you know, chuckling and him being happy that she, that he made her chuckle. And then that music playing over as they start walking the streets of Gotham and her mentioning that, you know, the guy who killed those three wall street boys is obviously a hero because, you know, there's three less, less pricks in Gotham and okay, obviously, obviously that's delusion. Definitely should have been a major clue that it was fake. Definitely didn't catch on. And then what was the fourth delusion? Oh, the fourth delusion was her in the hospital, like um, supporting him while his mom was in a coma. This was a really sad delusion for me, actually, once it was revealed that she was delusion because it was such a simple one, right? She's in the hospital while his mother is in a coma. She's patting him on the back and then she offers to get him a cup of coffee. That's it. That was that was all. And it's such a simple imagination, really, considering everything that he can imagine when creating a delusion. But it kind of makes it all the more tragic. I don't know. And then the last gut punch, which is out of order from all the other scenes, but it's because it only felt like a gut punch the second time around. Gary being kind to Arthur when Arthur is packing up his things in the uh, the back room. Right. So Gary comes up to him and Arthur's packing up his locker and he says, you know, um, Arthur, I heard what what happened. Um, I'm really sorry. Okay, here's the reason why this scene is a gut punch. It's because later on, spoiler alert, if there haven't been 50 spoilers already, uh, later on, um, Arthur stabs Randall to death. Right. In his own apartment. And Gary is there. But he lets Gary live. He lets Gary go. And he says to Gary, you know, you were the only one who was ever kind to me. And then he kisses him on the head and then he lets him go. And if you go back and watch the film, really the only act of kindness that we see Gary show towards Joker is him expressing remorse that Arthur lost his job. That's it. That's all it took, guys, for a simple act of act of kindness to save Gary. Like I, I don't know. I I thought that was really well done in the movie because it emphasizes the importance of those small acts of kindness and how it can change an entire person's attitude. 
I don't know. It was really well done. And it, and it feels like a gut punch the second time around. The first time around, I, I didn't know how it was going to play out. Second time around, I felt it for sure. That is the end of the gut punches emotions. Okay. And then the third segment that I wanted to go into is uh, the symbolism. Oh boy. Am I huge on deconstructing the symbolism in film? It's something, it's like one of my favorite things I learned how to do while like learning about film in school, because all of a sudden everything had so much more possibility, like every element that a filmmaker decides to include in a scene, in the background, in the dialogue, suddenly becomes so much more meaningful. And I love dissecting the different director's choices and the different actor's choices and the different writer's choices. So the symbolism for Joker, I think the, at least the first thing that I really liked was the name choice. Arthur Fleck. Think about the scene just before he suffocates his mother to death, right? He's sitting down and he's smoking a cigarette and he's just thinking about the name Penny Fleck. And he says, you know, I never liked that name. You know, it's just, I'm, he, he hated that name. And think about that name. It's so, it's so perfectly chosen because what do you think of when you think of the word Fleck? Just like a fleck of dust, you know, insignificant, doesn't matter. It's, it, you know, its existence is irrelevant. And it's perfect for this character because remember that, you know, monologue he gives to the social worker for my entire life, I didn't know whether or not I even existed, but I do exist. And people are starting to notice, but they're only starting to notice when he starts becoming the Joker. Before then, nobody paid attention to Arthur Fleck. You know, remember that last monologue in the end, if, if, if I were dying on the street, nobody would care. You would just walk right over me. The name choice is perfect. The second uh, element of symbolism in this film that I really liked. I just, it played out so well and it was such a wonderful element cinematically. Like it just made the shots cooler was, uh, the smoking, the use of smoking in this film. Smoking is basically this character's form of sustenance throughout the film. You never see the character eat anything. And there's always this um, comment on him looking skinny and being malnutritioned. And there are those reports of him getting abuse as a child and him being malnourished as a child. And just like in every important scene, whether he's anxious or whether he's happy or whether he's just, you know, living, you know, always smoking, always blowing out this, this cloud of smoke. And it's very interesting because, you know, what do you think of when you think of smoke, right? It's toxic, it's poisonous, it's cancerous, right? But it's the sustenance for the Joker. And then in the end, there's that last scene. There's literally a shot where he's rising up on the hood of the car and there's one specific shot where he's just surrounded by the smoke of Gotham burning. And it's so interesting because it's almost like he's been blowing out all of this toxicity. He's been blowing out all of this smoke this entire movie. And in that last shot, the smoke comes back to him and is emanating from the city itself. And it just embraces him in this new Joker persona. I love the way it is used. And he just 
it's so um, like, oh my God, remember when the cop in the car is just like, uh, you know, you're just laughing and, and you shouldn't be laughing because the city is burning and it's in chaos. And he just, he just looks at the cop and he's like, I know, isn't it beautiful? And it's so like the Joker to just think of burning and chaos and riots as just this beautiful scene to take in with pleasure. And then the other image of symbolism that I really like in this film are uh, it, the stairs. The use of stairs in this film is brilliant. I know that sounds weird. Hear me out. You'll never look at stairs the same way in this film, I guarantee. Okay. The use of stairs in this film has a direct correlation to Arthur Fleck's progression into becoming the Joker. Think about this. In the beginning, when you see him walk up the giant flight of stairs to get his to his apartment building, the stairs are always lit with this dark blue hue. He always has this posture of being slumped over. And when he's walking up the stairs, he looks so depressed and he just has to trudge along and accept this life that has been handed to him. And it's just such a dreary, depressing Ugh, kind of scene when you see him walk up those stairs and just put in that effort to live life another day. But then he shoots his first victims and he gets fired from his job. And all of a sudden, when he's walking out of his workplace, he's descending down a flight of stairs and he walks into the light that is the brightness of day. And he's got this skip in his step. You know, there's there's an energy to the way he descends down the stairs. And then, of course, that last epic scene of him walking down the stairs away from his apartment building to the Murray Franklin show when he's got that epic dance and he's getting those kicks and those stomps in the in the puddles and he's just he's living his best life descending down the stairs and i like it because it's kind of like this eerie descending into this dark evil chaotic character that he is becoming such a beautiful element in the film wonderfully used throughout it. And it's just, ah, oh my God, I love it. I love it so much. And then, okay, there's this last form of symbolism in the, in the movie that, okay, so you know how when movies come out on DVD, uh, there's usually like this director's commentary that you can click on so that when you're watching the film, you can get the thoughts of the director or the different stories behind the scenes between the director and the actors. I really can't wait for Joker to come out on DVD just so I can watch the director's commentary because this last bit of symbolism, I cannot fully explain. Like I have my theory about it, but I'm not sure. And it's the sexual undertones in Joker, starting with the the notebook or, you know, the joke book where he is writing all of his material to become a stand-up comedian. There's all of these scenes where he's flipping through the notebook or the social worker is flipping through the notebook or he's on the Murray Franklin show and he's flipping through the notebook. And there's these random pornographic images that are glued into the pages and it's so quick it's just there in a flash so it's not really something that's focused on but it's emphasized just enough to reveal a certain importance and then there's like the other sexual undertones where you know he's watching the stand-up 
comedians that he's taking notes from. Like there's this one the scene where he's taking notes in the crowd and he's watching. Oh my God. First of all, shout out to Gary Goldman. Gary Goldman is one of the standups and he's giving that skit on the scenario of having a girlfriend and playing out sexual fantasies like the professor and senior trying to pass a class. And he writes in his book, you know, sexy jokes are always funny or that stand-up comedian that is on just before he goes on to his gig where uh, Sam Merrill is on stage and he's talking about sex for men versus women or even in the background um, there's a lot of like really raunchy billboards in the background of the city of Gotham for certain shots and of course there's the guest on the Murray Franklin show before uh, Joker makes his entrance. And if you listen closely in the background, when Murray Franklin is about to introduce Joker, Dr. Sally, who's the first guest, is hearing Murray Franklin say, oh, you know, uh, I think you'd be interested in this next guest. And she asks, oh, does he have sexual problems? And and Murray Franklin responds with, no, he's, he's got a lot of problems, I think. But it's just these weird sexual undertones and then oh my god the the dance moves there are two specifically choreographed dances in this movie and it's the the scene at the end in arkham and then the dancing sequence down the stairs and there are these moves that are choreographed into the sequence where he's just kind of like thrusting into the air like it's just like one giant you know f of the world like he's i don't i don't know how to I don't know. It's weird. It's something that I, I don't know how to fully interpret. I, I think it's like it's got to play. A, it, the reason why it was inputted is because a man's sexuality or like um a man's inability to explore his sexuality or a man just like lacking sex in his life is going to be affected by it or is going to have an obsession with it. And it's going to add to his desperation as a character. Very interesting choice. Not entirely sure sure if I'm right about it, but I really want to know the director's take on it because it's something that is prevalent throughout the entire film. And then of course, the last segment that I want to go over for the Joker is, are basically like the deeper, the deeper meanings, um, the themes throughout the film that provide commentary on the larger subjects that are relevant to us, to our day and age, to our experiences. The first subject is the movie's commentary on the healthcare system. Okay, think about the social worker scenes. You know, I think there's two main scenes where Arthur Fleck is having a conversation with a social worker. The first one, it's revealed that the social worker doesn't actually listen to him, you know, doesn't actually hear him out when he talks about wanting to become a stand-up comedian or, you know, just there's, there's all of these... Uh, kind of undertones of criticism for a system that doesn't care about the mentally ill. Like Arthur is on seven medications. That's the way the healthcare system is dealing with the mentally ill. And then all of a sudden the programs are cut. So the government doesn't actually care about providing services for the mentally ill community. And like that monologue from the social worker where she's just like, um, this world doesn't give a shit about you. You know, nobody gives a shit about people like you. Nobody gives a, a shit about people like me. You know, the people trying to help and the people who need the help. You're all forgotten. And then of course, there's that amazing last line before he shoots Murray Franklin, where he says the joke, oh, you know, what What was it? You know, what do you get when you cross a mentally ill loader with a society that abandons him and treats him like trash? You get what you fucking deserve. Bam. Right? Such an articulate 
commentary on the healthcare system and the desperation that it is building up in the patients in need of actual help and actual services. And yeah, it's it's so realistic, right? I mean, how many people are getting screwed over by the healthcare system? How many people are is are the healthcare systems failing? Like this isn't actual care. This is this is this is a society abandoning you. This is a healthcare system abandoning you. Doctors should be helping. Social workers should be helping. Medications shouldn't be given in mass. They should be given for specific needs and they should actually be working. Seven medications later, Arthur Fleck is asking for more because they're not working. Nothing is working in this system. Such amazing commentary. So important, especially for this day and age. And it's so amazing that this film is kind of set in like, it feels like a 70s, like a grungy New York 70s vibe, but it obviously translates to modern day. And then the other major subject that the the Joker or Joker takes on is the wealth disparity, right? The the commentary on the one percent and the the kind of like how the one percent leaves everyone else in poverty, right? And this is an interesting subject that starts with the Joker's first kills being three white, well educated Wall Street men who just kind of, it's obvious that they take life for granted. It's obvious that they don't have a problem bullying the people around them. It's obvious that they engage in violence because they know they're going to get away with it. And even, it's such an interesting portrayal of Thomas Wayne, because this is the first time Thomas Wayne is being portrayed as like this rich, wealthy, gross kind of person who's disconnected with the realities of the slums and ghettos of Gotham. And that's not usually the case. Thomas Wayne is usually shown as a compassionate guy who wants to save the city and wants to give back because he feels guilty of having so much wealth. This is a completely different take. It's, of course, a take that fits in with the Joker's narrative, but it it also works to provide commentary on how wealth disparity affects a society as a whole. Why it's so easy for something as small as... Something like the, the the murders on the train leading to the the clown riots or something as simple as Thomas Wayne going on national television and calling anyone that doesn't make anything of themselves clowns. And then, of course, the clown becoming the symbolism for, you know, the other 99 percent demanding that they be given better conditions in life. And something that's interesting throughout the film is uh, there's usually like this background, whether it's on the radio or whether it's on the TV playing of the chaos of Gotham, you know, the, the news talking about the garbage building up in the cities and the stench. And, you know, even when you, you're going through certain sets of Joker, there's graffiti and there's scratches. And it's so obvious that the quality of life is so low And it's interesting because this is what's supposed to be like 70s Gotham. It's a direct parallel to 70s New York. And anyone who knows anything about 70s New York knows that New York was a shit show. And New York was literally burning because people would burn down buildings for the insurance because that was worth it more than actually letting the building stand. So... New York is literally in ashes in some parts of the ghettos and slums. A direct parallel for the choices they make in Joker, especially throughout the film. And it's 
so important because when people are stuck in those conditions, obviously a level of desperation builds up and leads to riots, leads to discomfort, leads to this like, you know, passionate hatred for the people who do have because they have so much and they're not giving anything in return. There's no opportunity. And that's something that's really emphasized throughout the film. Amazing commentary as well. Super prevalent to this day and age, especially the political climate of this day and age, which I think is interesting. And then, of course, uh, the third subject that this movie takes on is homegrown domestic terrorism. That is such a prevalent topic in this day and age. Think of all of the shootings. Think of all of the commentary and all of the narratives that come out of mainstream media where you talk about different shootings that are happening all over the country. And it's just like, well, this is a, this guy is a, a, a loner. You know, this guy was mentally ill. You know, this is a unique situation. This is an individual. And they're still pushing that narrative, even though it's happening so often. Like, how do you justify calling some a unique situation when it's happening so often. And then you get the story of the Joker and you see him being abused at his job, him being abused on the job, his co-workers setting him up to get fired because of, you know, Randall giving him the gun or the kids bullying him, destroying the sign, kicking him until he's, he's, he's down and he can't get back up, bruising him. And then the boss not being on his side, taking money out of his paycheck for things that he had no control over. And just like the escalation of being mentally ill, not having a healthcare system to, to provide for him, not having an emotional support system at home, not having the money or the possibility to do anything with his life or to get out of the slums that he lives in or to have some sort of decent environment or life. And it's just like, it all builds up. And when you do enough to push a man down and to deny him anything to make him happy at all, you are essentially creating your own terrorists. And that is one of the biggest commentaries of the Joker that I think anyone can take away from. Like, it's such a powerful message. It's such an important message. I mean, really, it's crazy the times that we live in. And it's crazy that we can have an entire movie about a chaotic character such as Joker and have it feel so real, so authentic. That's what's interesting about this movie. It feels authentic. It's set in freaking Gotham and it's about Joker. And there's this you know, the allusion to, you know, Batman eventually becoming a thing, but somehow it feels real, which is the scariest thing about this film. I think, you know, of all the things that scare me, it's realistic in this grungy, eerie, beautiful, disturbing way. Yeah. Amazing symbolism, amazing commentary. It's it's so insane to me that Todd Phillips freaking directed the Hangover movies because like, was he just hiding this talent all along? I don't know. I, I've never actually been interested in the Hangover movies. That could be just me. Whatever. Anyway, super impressive. Uh, and I can't wait to see more from him if I do, if he's making anything. Okay. So uh, the last thing I want to uh, kind of end this episode on are uh, <laughs> the theories. Because <laughs> if y'all have seen the Joker, y'all saw that last scene 
of Joker laughing in the hospital. And then, of course, him walking out of the room with the social worker uh, with those bloody footprints down the hall and then doing the dance and then being chased and everything like that. Okay. So something that's interesting that I came across online was the director, Todd Phillips, wanted uh, people to pay attention to the fact that in that scene, that is the first and only time that we are hearing an authentic laugh from Joker. It's not a forced laugh due to the neurological condition that he's got. And it's not um, a fake laugh that he performs in order to either laugh at a coworker's joke or try and fit in with the crowds at the comedy club. This is his genuine laugh. And while he's laughing at whatever he's thinking of, there is this flash cut to Bruce Wayne as a child in the alleyway surrounded by his dead parents. And then it flashes back to him still laughing and the social worker saying, oh, you know, what's so funny? And him saying, you wouldn't get it. Okay, people, the amount of theories that have come out after that crazy ending are insane. And guess what, guys? You know what my theory is? None of the shit actually happened. The entire movie is one giant Joker delusion. Just my feeling, clues and evidences as to why that's my theory. And really, I only started uh, building up this theory when I watched it the third time and I started taking notes on the different details in the background because once you go watch it and you pay attention to these things, it's almost like, obviously, the entire thing is delusion. But we'll see. Um, Hear me out. It's the smaller details that kind of don't fit with reality as it should be. So things like, okay, when he's suffocating his mother in the hospital, you hear the, the heartbeat monitor eventually zero down to a line, right? Okay. In a hospital, when a patient's in distress, what happens? Some uh, An alarm goes off to alert nurses that a patient is in distress, right? That didn't happen. It was just so easy for him to kill his mother. Or, okay, a smaller detail is like when he gets fired from his job and he hits his forehead against the wall of the telephone booth and the glass cracks. That that doesn't happen. Or, okay, when in the first uh, meeting with the social worker, she asks him, oh, you know, have you thought more about why you were in the mental institute? And you just get that the quick flash shot of Arthur banging his head against the the wall of his room, which must have been in the asylum. Honestly, that one instant flash shot that we don't get ever again, I think is the big clue that Joker is stuck in the hospital and he's just building up this entire thing to endure his time at the hospital or at the asylum. So for me, it's the use of patterns in the film that kind of clue me into this maybe being one giant delusion. Arkham Asylum is made up of tiles and grids that cover the windows and chain and chain link fences, right? So if you watch throughout the film, you kind of see those patterns repeated throughout different settings. In his apartment, the wallpaper is this kind of grid-like pattern that looks like a jail or a cage. And, you know, in the bathroom scene or in the social worker's office, there's these tiles or even in the in the in the elevator, there's these tiles and there's grid work that feels like a prison. And you'll see that throughout the film. That could have been just a choice to get the feeling of a prison throughout the film. I think it was intentional to prove that it was one giant delusion. I could be stretching, whatever. The biggest one for me 
is um, the elevator when he's in full Joker costume. So we are in the elevator multiple times throughout the film and the elevator is dirty. It's dysfunctional. The light flickers. There's graffiti all over it. It's just, it's obviously a ghetto elevator, right? That last scene when he's in full Joker costume, he's in full Joker makeup, he's he's in the suit, he walks into the elevator of his apartment building. And if you look closely, it is a completely different elevator. It's clean. The walls are made of this beautiful, slick, smooth wood. There is not a single etching of graffiti to be found anywhere. The lighting is perfect, not flickering at all. And it's just like, it's almost like the elevator changed to match the empowerment that Arthur felt as Joker. And when I saw the environment shift according to his imagination, that's when I was like, oh yeah, that didn't happen. And of course, oh my God, guys, like the, the, the crowd in the end where he just stands up on the, on the crashed police car and strikes a pose to like, please the hundreds of people that are in clown makeup and in clown costumes and in clown masks cheering for him to, to rise up. That's obviously a delusion like that there's no way that happened or even just the idea of him being invited onto the murray franklin show the biggest late night show for doing a crappy comedy skit like come on this is this is this is some bs and then of course the that very last scene you know him saying oh you know you wouldn't get it and the specific image of bruce wayne as a child surrounded by his dead parents i think that's a major clue because it's like only the joker would laugh at the image of a child being surrounded by his dead parents but i think it's also like i think the joker likes the idea of being responsible for the creation of batman right because so he's he's on national television and he he says the line, you know, you get what you fucking deserve. And then he shoots Murray Franklin. Right. And then the the guy in the clown masks who eventually shoots Thomas Wayne his and his wife and leaves Bruce alive repeats the Joker's words. Right. You get what you fucking deserve. I can totally imagine the Joker getting a kick out of being the inspiration behind the death of Batman's parents. Like it just, it just seems like the thing that would get him chuckling. And it's so, I don't know, it's so sinister. And, and when he's walking out of that room with the blood on his shoes, obviously he's killed the woman, right? But it's, it's like legit in cold blood. There's no revenge behind it. There's there's no de- self-defense argument behind it. There's no, oh, you know, you ruined my life, so I'm going to take yours kind of scenario. It's literally just death in cold blood. It's the first murder where we're just like, there is literally no explanation. Yeah, definitely a major clue. None of it happened, guys just my opinion, just my theory. It definitely upset me the first time I uh, thought about it, but I've come to think that it's a pretty genius theory. Anyway, Todd Phillips said that years in the future, he's going to reveal what he was thinking when he actually filmed the, the entire movie, which 
kind of pisses me off because I'm just like, you can guarantee that you're going to live long enough to tell us like what you were thinking. Like I need that information to be documented and released to the public now before anything happens out of the blue. Anyway, thank you for listening. Those are the layers in media that I have discovered. And I am your host, Aisha Sala. Catch you next time. Back on top, back on top in June. I said that's life. Get their kicks Stomping on a dream But I don't let it Let it get me down Cause this fine old